Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Just a quick note before we start, that we're talking about a film that was released in 1945, so we're a bit splashy with uh, talking about the plot and details because it's been out there for a long time. But if you are worried about that, watch the film first. You can rent it from loads of streamers for about three quid. Um, it's really good. Um, if not, you can still listen to this. I don't think anything that we talk about would spoil your enjoyment of the film, though if you want to maybe listen and drop out before the last five or ten minutes, then you won't have the ending. Uh, revealed, but apart from that, we're just trying to be enthusiastic about it, and hopefully, won't be too spoilery. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket, and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like a book, or a TV show, or a record, or a film that they find comforting, that they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, we'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm talking to the writer and broadcaster Julia Rayside. Julia talks about TV on the radio and things like Radio 4 and Radio 6 and writes about it for uh, The Times and The Guardian and The iPaper. And she also lives in my house because she's my wife. And because she's my wife, I know that her favourite film is a horror film. So I thought it would be a good one to do for Halloween. We're going to talk about the film Dead of Night. Hamlet was right, Doctor. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy. And my recurring dream isn't just a meaningless trick of the mind. It was sent to me as a warning. A warning against the terror that's waiting for me in this house. Well, I'm like Granger. I'm going to act on the warning. I'm going to leave here now, this instant. Craig, if you go now, you'll be making a profound mistake. You'll be delivering yourself into the hands of your obsession. I beg you to stay and see it through. Whatever happens, if anything happens, the reality can't possibly be as bad as your imagination has painted it. Why not? I tell you, Doctor, there's something horrible waiting for me here. Perhaps even death itself. You've chosen for your Halloween choice. The 1945 film Dead of Night. 
Spooktacles. <laughs> I've heard you say this is your favourite film. I, I, honestly, I think Backs Against the Wall, it probably would be my favourite film if, if I was absolutely forced to choose because it's so many different films in one film. Oh, good I guess <laughs> Desert Island-wise, yeah. then it means I'm getting to take something away that's more than just one story or the sum of its parts. So yeah, I, yeah it is my favourite film. That's amazing. I think what's interesting about this is that you've chosen a film which is a horror film. But I don't like horror films. Exactly, which I think is really interesting. One of the the fun things about trying to do uh, some Halloween comfort blankets is I don't think we've quite dealt with before the comfort you can feel from being scared. Oh, yeah, definitely. The safe scare. It's like, you know, know, the stakes are only on the screen. They're not going to come and get you the other side of the glass. It's. I think there's something because it's an Ealing, it's black and white and people are dressed in lovely 1940s clothes. There's something very theatrical and safe and beyond the fourth wall about it which means it. I don't ever feel like it's going to come there's a creepy um, ventriloquist dummy in it but I don't ever feel like he's going to climb through the screen and kind of yeah. there's no connection with my world like it looks like it's set on another planet pretty much for me it doesn't bear any resemblance to my modern life I find modern horror much more creepy it's like it could happen here that feeling yeah. I don't like at all but if it's something that looks like it's in a really alien place then antiquity which if we, we, we mm. come back to again and again with this film that antiquity to me looks like a fairly safe place. Like it doesn't look, there are, there are obviously shots in this film that are so brilliantly done that look so incredibly modern, like the twitching of a curtain or a particular angle up a staircase that do kind of make you go, ah, but it's, it's, it's safe for me. I don't yeah. know why it just feels safe. I'm not frightened. I'm not frightened. Oh, oh please hold me tight. Oh, hold me tight. Well, the yeah. interesting thing about, I remember Jeremy Dyson saying about black and white horror, and um, he was talking about The Innocence, which is one of my favourite horror films. Oh, yeah. Said, but with black and white horror, it's a bit more like a campfire story, as in it's not realistic, it doesn't look like your real life. So you lean in a bit to sort of invent the colours in your head. I suppose. And by leaning in, it's a bit like a, like a theatrical horror. Weirdly, it can be like scarier because your imagination fills in the gaps. Yeah. But also, there's something lovely about black and white horror, which is why people like old movies and watch, say, Universal Horror, Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah. In the, it's not happening. It's like going to the theatre or it's going to having someone tell you a story you're using your imagination to fill in those gaps so sometimes that can mean your imagination floods it with horror yeah. and sometimes it can mean you can just turn your imagination off and feel safe yeah i think there's there's something very particular about this film watching it again which i'd forgotten which it's even obviously it's in it's monochrome but it starts in like blazing sunshine yeah. broad daylight a car barring along an english country lane in blazing sunshine and it ends the same way yeah but in the meantime perhaps without you even noticing someone has been very gradually just drawing the curtains and putting out the candles and then suddenly you're like, oh shit, this is actually quite frightening by the time you get to the last story. And just as I'm starting to think I don't like it, it finishes, so I'm fine. (laughs) It is meticulously placed to make you have comforting scares. And I think that's an incredibly clever thing about it. Which probably explains what it is. If someone hasn't seen Dead of Night, it's a portmanteau horror film. Yeah, and I I feel like every time you use the word horror, I want to go, oh no, but it is, it's a chiller, it's it's genuinely the film version of people gathering around a fire and telling ghost stories. That's really what it is. So it's a series of ghost stories, but interestingly, there was a certificate for British films called H for Horror, Mm. which were, I imagine, designed for things like Peeping Tom and the, like like the X certificate. The was nasty stuff. It was basically yeah, slashers and violence. And this was, I think, its marketing said it was a psychological thriller. Yeah. And a, a couple of a couple of descriptions in its marketing said it was a comedy melodrama. 
Because there is comedy in it as well. Yeah, it's, it's very like, British. The portmanteau nature of it means it's not just one thing and it doesn't just set one tone. And there's a framing device. You come back to this country house with, it's almost like an Agatha Christie, you know, with yeah. assembled rag, ragtag bunch Professor of people. Professor Plum's there and very Miss much Scarlet. So. <laughs> yeah, like a, a kind of a psychoanalyst with a comedy in like Northern European accent, you know, the full bit. Mr. Cray, can you describe what happens in your dream? Well, not in detail. It's got the full Knives Out sort of thing. If you like those things, where oh, it's, it's yeah. a setup of, of set characters. It's stagey. You'd recognise it. That's that's what I keep coming back to. Forties person though. would recognise it. Totally. It feels like a play. It feels like something you'd go and see in the West End. It definitely feels like something. If they remade it now, it would be with the Knives Out cast. Like it's very. <laughs> it's effectively people telling tales of the uncanny. It was literally sitting in front of a fireplace having a chat, and it's sort of, it starts off in daylight, and then obviously as they're talking, it becomes evening, and it becomes apparent that one of the characters there has dreamt about the house before and he's afraid of being there. He thinks he knows what's going to happen. It's uneasy from the very beginning because it opens up and it's a lovely, one of those classic sort of English country house things. You're yeah. driving up the long drive and he looks at the house and you're going, well, it's just driving up the drive and it's a house. What's yeah. wrong? But he looks uneasy and you go, well, something's wrong. And when he arrives, he knows where to hang his coat up. He's never been there before. That's the, but the first kind of, uh-oh, it's really well done, isn't You've it? You've been here before. And it's beautifully done. And all you can see is everyone else goes, well, welcome, lovely to see you. Like, he's an architect. He's come to probably, by the end of it, you've worked it, he might be coming to do some work on the no, house. No, they said that they need they need an extra, at least an extra two rooms on the yeah. ground floor. because it's a small, they, cosy house. They want to extend this this nice house in the countryside. And um, I'd forgotten, actually, when I, until I watched it again. He's an architect. And when he knows where to hang his coat up, the owner of the house, the guy who lets him in, just assumes that it's his architect's eye that's told yeah. him where the obvious place for a coat rack would be. But obviously it's completely because he's dreamt about the house. He's and been here before. But it always starts exactly the same as when I arrived just now. I turn off the main road into the lane. At the bend in the lane, the house comes into view. And I stop as I recognise it. You see the unease in his eyes and it's a lovely... Oh, the it's reason, a great performance. The reason why this is, I think, a great film horror and an interesting film horror is unlike a theatrical horror or a, a, a horror in a book, this is film horror and it's all in the eyes and all in the faces. Oh, yeah. And it builds towards, and we're going to head there, one of the greatest scared eye performances of all time, <laughs> yes. which is the climactic story of Michael Redgrave. But the first person you see has unease in their face yeah. and you're invited by the intimacy of a camera to read that someone here is ill at ease. It's yes. about unease. And it's also juxtaposing that with the kind of jollity of like lovely Googie Withers sat by the fire <laughs> sipping on a whatever it is, a glass of port. Googie Withers is there. Sally Ann Howes is there. She's truly scrumptious. Truly scrumptious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of very nice, light sort of 1940s entertainment performances. Yeah in what is going to be obviously something much darker. And actually, even when they all end up telling a story of when something... Oh, actually, now I think of it, something really weird has happened to me Since too. Since you asked me for a tale of mystery and imagination, <laughs> exactly. it's that format. <laughs> and even when, when Googie Withers is about to tell her story, which is horrific, <laughs> genuinely horrific, um, she, she says something like... Um, Doctor, may I hope that you'll be able to explain to me a happening which put it mildly, has always puzzled me. Dude, your husband nearly murdered you. Well, the fabric of reality completely <laughs> of fractured. mirror. <laughs> Did that bother you? But it's uh, the thing to remember about this, and one of the things, when you describe it to people, uh, they will suddenly, oh, I know what one of those is. <clears throat> the thing that's interesting about this is that horror movies were banned in the yes, Second World War. right. Ealing had made comedies and uh, war films and uplifting stuff. Keep it light, Ealing. And the idea was keep it light. This is the first film, 1945, after the war, 
and they made a horror film. Yeah. And it's a huge deal. And it it's is. such a huge deal. It's a massively successful film. Yeah. And it then sets the template for any of these things that you've seen either done for seriousness in things like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors yeah. and Asylum and things, or parodied by the League of Gentlemen guys or whatever. Anytime there's a thing where, where it turns out at the end, but you were all on the train, but you were dead. Yeah. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror, who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. You've seen that's done so often you think it's a joke, but this is the first one of these. It is. It not happened before. There's a reason, the reason I know the film in the first place is because I did film at Warwick University and this was one of the very early things they showed us. Really? To give us a kind of the roots of British horror education. It was clearly something that's gone on to influence a, a large amount of filmmakers you definitely have seen the ripples from dead of night whether you know it or not in every kind of psychological horror film since abracadabra i sit on his knee presto changeo and now he is me focus focus we take her to bed magic is fine we are dead Josephine Levine presents Magic, a terrifying love story, starring Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith, rated R. Not only is it a portmanteau film, it's directed by four directors. Um, and they all have different jobs and they all make different bits of it. And they're all very different sorts of directors and, and are going to go on to be known for different sorts of films. And they've, they've all kind of cut their teeth on yeah. Ealing and other kind of light British comedies and sort of like domestic dramas. dramas. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, I, they've all kind of come from somewhere. They, they come into this and in a way, it's kind of a demo tape. Ealing have come back out of the war and they Very go, right, much. so we'll show what we've got. Here's our team. And all these guys, when they're making Dead of Night, are making other films. Yeah. So they say, okay, come and do a day on Dead of Night. Come and, and it's, Isn't that it's, amazing? It's just a demo tape and it says, we can do all these things. And because of that, it's got all the different tones that Ealing wants to do. It's got yeah. comedy, it's got domestic drama, it feels like there's bits that feel like a crime story. Funny golfers. It's got a comedy golfers and, and double acts <laughs> and, and a bit, that bit's directed by Charles Crichton who'd go on to make the Lavender Hill Mob. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it's just a demo tape of what they can do. Yeah. And because of that, I think people look at it and go, oh, it's not just a straight horror. People go, oh, I don't like the funny bits or whatever. And you go, no, you've got to like all of it. It's, it's, it's that, I think that's it. It's almost like a meal and that you're kind of being offered courses. And at one point it's completely catches you off guard. There is this, and it, it's the one that people always sort of pick out as the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb. The rest is so sort of like gothic and, and spooky. And then there's this ridiculous story about these two friends who are golfers who fall in love with a lady golfer, the same one. And then they decide with a golfing uh, tournament who's going to win. She's a passive object, obviously. It's oh, yeah, trophy. She's a golfer. Trophy. She's terribly pretty, <laughs> and um, whichever one wins the golf tournament uh, gets to marry her, and the other one just walks off into a lake and That's kills it. himself, That's and then the haunts them for the rest of time. But it's funny haunting. It's all. It's just all so silly. And people talk about that one as not being. As, as, it shouldn't be there. But taken as a whole, it's kind of like this sort of weird. It throws you off balance a bit. It cleanses your palate slightly yeah. when you're starting to get a bit. Oh God! So that when you come to the tail end of the film, you're able to take. And yes. I guess it is like you said. If 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 they had banned horror up until this point, 
maybe they're trying to ease people back yeah. in by having a sandwich where some of the filling isn't. Oh God! Well, all, all the stories are supernatural in one way or another, yeah. or a lot of them are ghost stories or time slip stories. They use the forms of very often. Uh, interestingly, a lot of them are Edwardian horror, sort of, in a, sort of ghost stories, or yeah. So they they try all the different sorts of horror, and yeah. one of the sorts of horror or ghost story you can do is a funny ghost story. That one's based on an HGL story uh, called the Inexperienced Ghost, and the idea of it, right. he's a new ghost and he can't quite do it, so he can't quite materialise and de- dematerialise. So it feels like rent a ghost. It's rent a ghost, Beetlejuice, all or, of that stuff. Or even um, uh, it's a wonderful life. The idea of the new angel who's not very good at it. It's got yes. a slightly. It's a very sort of it's a wonderful life Completely. sequence. The, the humour of it. Yeah, um, yeah. But all those tones are in there. And interestingly, when it went over to America, America used to butcher British films a lot to go, oh, it needs to be faster. And they'd always lose the golf. Oh, it's too gosh, British. the Americans, did they? they? Oh. They'd also lose very often the Christmas story uh, with Sally Ann House and the hide and seek. Oh, no, that's one and of my favourite bits. And you realise that when you get to the end of it, because of all the callbacks and the way that the tones were being bounced up, it, the film literally won't make any sense. No, 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 no. And you very confusing. Even though it's a portmanteau film, if you take something out of it, it doesn't work. No. And most portmanteau films, there's one that doesn't work. And you go, if, if I fast forward past that, I don't lose anything. It is a selection box on the whole, usually, yeah. isn't it? But in, in this case, it's not at all. It's a total meal. You've got to do all the courses in order <laughs> with the wine pairing or you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> the Ealing Sommeliers have presented you with exactly what you need. And actually, that, Do not insult them. <laughs> the funny golfer thing happens directly before the closing 20 minutes of it, yep. which is going to absolutely take your head off. Completely And brilliant. if you just slowly accelerate it to that, and I'm sure anyone who makes films for, I don't know, Blumhouse or A24 mm. would say, no, you can't just zoom and just keep turning the shepherd tone up and up and up. Yes. What you need to do is have a little moment of breath and then throw it's you really in. It's really intelligent, isn't it? It's not, it's a lot more sophisticated than it might appear. Yeah. If you haven't seen this, by the way, um, I, I'm assuming you, we've got the DVD, but I'm assuming you can get it somewhere. Yeah. You have to watch it if you're any kind of a fan of psychological horrors, thrillers, just good comic acting, good dramatic acting, because yeah. Michael Redgrave in this, probably one of the th- best things I've ever seen him do. I knew you wouldn't leave me, you'll go. I knew you'd come back. Not for long, my boy. Not for long. You're going to stop in jail for years and years and years and years. That wouldn't suit me. But you, you'll tell him the truth. You, you'll tell him it wasn't my fault. What sort of dummy do you think I am? Matthew um, Sweet said about about Michael Redgrave's performance. He said, "I think that's one of the best performances." And you're waiting to see what he's going to say. He says, "In the medium, yes. What in film?" And yeah. the answer is, "Yes, it is." He's right because Michael Redgrave, who is in the climactic story, the one that probably if you've heard of Dead of Night and seen a poster of, you'll recognise it from. It's the ventriloquist and his dummy story. Gungy, and his the gummy, gummy. that's magic and this. <laughs> and he's called and Hugo, and Hugo. he's fucking terrifying. If I'm allowed to say that word <laughs> on Michael, this otherwise very genteel podcast, Michael Redgrave is versus his dummy. It's yeah. the, that that story. The performance he's giving, and he's a very respected stage and screen actor at that point, mm. he's come to do 15 minutes in a trashy horror film, yeah. and he gives it 100%. Nothing at, trashy about that performance. And I think that's where you get Psycho from. Yeah. There's no way Hitchcock goes and makes Psycho. There's a lot of Hitchcock uh, collaborators in this. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the screenwriters, I think, did Spellbound. Yep. This is the line that leads you to black and white, staring into the eyes of a madman horror. Yeah. Uh, the end of this is, I think, scarier than Psycho, and is the... The, the dry run for where we're going to go Complete, with Psycho. Completely agree. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Whenever we've had a conversation about horror and really what is it that you find so 
what's the most frightening yeah. thing? And and often in a horror film, the most frightening thing is if there isn't a ghost or if there isn't a supernatural thing, I've gone mad. Yes. That, and, and that character and that story completely encapsulates the terror of, I think I've lost my mind. If we're going to so ha- brilliant, if we're going to go through these in order, and we should we should do we, we should, should talk we should talk about them as a, as, a, as a bunch of stories. The 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 link between all of this, which is a classic ghost story, and it's what M R James invented, E F Benson was really good at, yeah. um, is the idea of going if that ghost is there, and I know it's not there, yes. then I've gone mad. And the setup for this is a guy turns up and he goes, I don't know what's real and what's not real. Yes. I've had a recurring nightmare. Am I going mad? And one of the guys in the room he meets is the uh, a German-accented expert and psychiatrist who says, of course there is no such thing. Yes. And that structure, whether it's Mulder and Scully or even Danny Robbins' play... Absolutely, you've got to have the sceptic. Danny Robbins' play, which is doing really well in the, in the West End and out on Broadway at the moment, yeah. literally is a house where people come in and say, I've seen a ghost, and everyone goes, "That's not." one person says, that's not possible. Yeah. And they argue, have I gone mad? Yeah. That is a great structure. It's a great structure. I think what I particularly like about Dead of Night is that one after the other. Obviously, the women fall first. Um, <laughs> one after another, as they're sort of imparting these stories of, well, actually, something really, something I can't explain either happened to me. They start to come and they start to vocalise that they're coming around to his way of thinking, the architect, and that he might be onto something. And maybe, maybe it's not just that he's had a dream about this house. Maybe there's something strange going on. Or they're no one specific, but they all start off going, well, how terribly silly. Anyway, have a cup of tea, sit down, calm down. We've had a war, you know. And then... And then slowly but surely they start to take him more seriously as they sort of key into his distress and his yeah. uncertainty. It's really brilliantly done. Surely, Mr. Craig, you might have seen any of us sometime or another in the street or anywhere. Yes. But why should I always dream about meeting you all together here in this room? There's a very good point in there, which only occurred to me today thinking about it. There's just been a war. Yeah. And I don't know when this is set, but I assume it's set in 1945. And there's just been a war, and what's the one thing that isn't mentioned at all is the, the war. war. And it's a horror film. And you go, right, at the beginning, there's a guy in hospital, recovering hospital, but why isn't he a soldier? No, he's a motor racing driver. No, that's it, but there's so many similarities. Like in any war film you've ever seen, where a guy meets a pretty nurse yeah. in a hospital recovering from his war wounds or, you know, we're having shrapnel removed from his leg. It was indistinguishable from one of those scenes. But he this guy is, accident. He's a <laughs> racing driver and he's crashed his car. But then it's the, it's the twice around the daffodils thing. It's the same yeah. setup and actually ends up sort of meeting this lovely nurse and getting married. And then she turns up later. But they don't mention the war. And I, it occurred to me for the first time that what is horror about? Horror is always about what you're burying down, what you're yeah, hiding. Yeah, the repressed. So in, in the classic American one, there's an ancient Indian burial we did a bad thing a long time ago yeah. and, and the ghosts have come to get you back mm. it's always about that fear of what you're not admitting yeah and this all these stiff upper lip people in a lovely country house who apparently haven't had a war and everything's fine again it's all bright sunshine yeah come and they say do you know what i feel really weird and scared yeah and they go, well what could that possibly be we've all we've all done yes. all bits and stiff upper lip and keep calm and carry on mm-hmm. and then one by one they go no no actually i had something happen to me recently that was really scary what was that was it a war but- no it wasn't a war <laughs> uh, that definitely didn't happen but there was a ghost and they're slowly admitting yeah. they're scared but they still yeah they still kind of brush it off in a brilliantly British Ealing way but it just reveals little yeah little insights into oh this you've you've been through but it's so funny like I said with the Googie Withers thing she's literally talking about the time where she was engaged to be married she brought her husband a mirror from an antique shop in Chichester. Never, I, I would now never buy a mirror from God, an antique shop so in Chichester. <laughs> not if you paid me, not if you gave it to and me. And you love antiques and you love Chichester. I really, really do. Um, wow. And yeah, she brings it home and then he starts seeing another room in the mirror and then it drives him mad and then he becomes homicidal and he tries to throttle her with like his silk scarf. Peter, the mirror! 
Mr. Rutherford, tell me about it. That's why I came back. It belonged to a man who was crippled who accused his wife just as you're now accusing me. something that they say something terrible happened to me something really, now you mention it i was i did <laughs> have a period where i seemed to be shaking with nerves but i can't remember what it was about i'll yes. tell you a ghost story and you want to sort of say i seem to remember liking gin a lot around then too yeah. anyway on we go <laughs> my house was suddenly rubble i mean it's this strange sort of thing of, of the great unsaid and all of them yeah. are about the british stiff upper lip and all of them especially and that's why i think that the golfer story is completely defensible yes it's about a certain kind of male camaraderie that would get you through a war yeah. nothing fuss about fun enough doesn't really matter who's committed suicide doesn't really matter yeah all that keeps come and carry on is running through the thing it is and it's all about these people who say one by one when a guy comes in and says I'm shaking like a leaf they all yeah. go actually me too you poor darling well I think you could do with a drink after that I know I could mother what did you do with that bottle of schnapps I got for Dr Van Straten there's one of my favourite lines in the whole film, which I remember just really looking forward to when it came around again. <laughs> so truly scrumptious, Sally Ann Howes. Um, she's kind of a teenager in this film. Yeah, it's one of her really very young. early roles. Th- there's a line, she says, where she realises something actually quite frightening might just have happened to her. And she kind of becomes frozen and her face goes very slow and she goes, Oh, I'm not I'm frightened. Not frightened. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not frightened. And then kind of loses it. Oh. Oh, please hold me tight, oh, hold me tight. Because yeah. she's clearly just that they've all been taught. Like, come on, now you just have to bugger on, bugger it's on. It's really revealing. It's kind it's of amazing. funny in a sort of, it's got that brief encounter kind of buck up. Noel yeah. Cow- they're all very Noel Cowardy and brittle. That's something John Landis says. He said, totally. uh, to him as an American, he went, they're all cut from Noel Coward. This yeah. very stiff upper lip, very brief encounter. That's the, the, the yeah. model you know. Mm. And they're all pushed to a point where they're staring into the camera with properly frightened eyes. A thing that... British people don't do no. on camera at the time. Exactly. Were there even down the barrel shots, you know, that weren't for, I don't know, comic effect or yeah. an aside, like in, I can imagine like a, in a music hall, that kind yeah. of, that kind of vibe, but not in a hot, not in a scary film or and, a dramatic film. And so the first couple of those you see are, the, first, the first couple of stories, they're kind of just t- down the lens a little bit and she articulates and says, I'm not frightened. I'm not, and you go, mm. I'm not frightened. Okay. You look frightened, but you're not frightened. She's terrified. And yeah. you build towards a thing where you're staring into Michael Redgrave's eyes and you go, there's two things I can read in those eyes. You are terrified yeah. and you have gone mad. You've, you've lost reality. Because yeah. fear has driven you mad. And it's yeah. a slow journey. Same as they're turning the lights down. <laughs> the, the eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes. And at the end, you have to stare right down the maddest eyes you've ever seen. Amazing. Suppose I tell them the truth. Suppose I tell them that you made me do it. Try it and see what happens. They'll put you in the madhouse. Right, let's go through and, and talk about what actually happens in the stories. Yes. Because they're all interesting in their own different ways. They are. They're different films inside the, inside the film. Films within a film. Mm. So basically, uh, the first one that we get told, obviously, he arrives at the house and there's a little bit of business, a very nice bit of comedy business where he's like, I know you all. And they go, well, you might have seen us around. You may have seen us somewhere else. Maybe you've seen me in the papers. And Sally House has a lovely line where she yeah. says, uh, I was a bridesmaid and you know, I was in the Kent Courier or something yes. like that. Yes. <laughs> a lovely thing. So, well, that would explain everything why you think you've seen us before because I was in a local paper. Yeah, we've all been in in various newspaper articles but not for anything major but yeah, one yeah. of the guys there is a racing driver and he went I might be well known and so you might have be... seen me in the sports section <laughs> exactly it's a lovely friend <laughs> um, and he tells a story about something that happened to him and it's a nice simple weird story it's great I love it as an opener it's really clever it's I think. tiny it's not even a story it's an anecdote it's just a 
I remember this thing happening. I can't really explain it. I wasn't asleep. I'm sure I wasn't asleep. So basically, he's a racing driver. He crashes his car. Quite a spectacular stunt for back then, actually. It's a proper good crash. Might be stock footage. I don't know. It might well be. His car flips over, you know, touch and go, whether he's going to make it. And then he's conscious and they're sort of looking after him. And he, but he goes to the window. It's nighttime. And then suddenly it's daylight and a properly like Victorian. Feathered horses, hearse pulls up with um, Miles Mallison, who's, who's the most creepy looking actor you e- can think Ealing of. Cost. He's got these huge eyes, this sort of receding chin, and it obviously works in comedy. He's got a brilliant comedy yeah. face, but in this, it totally does the opposite. He looks like a Dickens engraving. Of he does. Like a, yeah, you can imagine him doing doing sensational Dickens bit parts. Totally, and he's driving the hearse. And he's looking straight ahead. The racing driver looks down. Nobody's moving. The hearse driver's not moving. And then after what seems like almost too long, where you're just like staring at it going, why are we staring at a hearse? I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> the hearse driver's head turns and then you see him in close-up and he just sort of cocks his chin upwards and says, Just room for one inside, sir. And it's just something, something really unpleasant about it. Obviously just chills the racing driver to the bone and he kind of closes the curtains and gets back in bed and is like really freaked out. Did that happen? Did it not happen? And yeah. It's, it's set up with a beautiful thing as he's walking towards the window. Yeah. There's a thing that I, it reminded me of the oh, way that yes. Robert Wise uses curtains and drapery and wallpaper in The Haunting. It's a black and white oh, room. Oh God, scary walks, curtains. He walks towards the curtains and they just... A tiny breeze, yeah. And there's a tiny noise on the soundtrack of of the sort of subtle noise you don't normally get in 40s. No, 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 no. It's real sort of, uh, it feels more 80s, 90s use of a very, very low horror sound effect. It's kind of thing that Kubrick would use. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, something behind that. Either something's behind that curtain or something behind that curtain has changed. And And you see his hesitancy once that's happened. And so you, within less than a second, you're kind of like, oh, no, don't open the curtain. And it's great. It's so well done. Up until that point, you felt very much, and this is a way, you're watching this in a way that you, you wouldn't have watched it in the 40s. Mm. You're watching this as a modern person. You're going, I feel completely safe because this is the language of 40s cinema. We've had a country house and a lovely old car and people going, mm. chatter, chatter, chatter. Uh, and then suddenly there's a thing that you go, well, that could be from Poltergeist. That could yeah. be from uh, a modern, that could be from Hereditary. It's a really modern horror technique. And suddenly you go, oh, I don't feel safe. Just yeah. for a split second. You it's go, because it's not like what you've just been watching. You've yeah. been watching effectively like a very sort of beautifully cluttered shot, a country house, movement, laughter, chatter. And then suddenly this incredibly still image yeah. that you're just asked to look at for a little bit too long. And it's like, what's going on? Why? 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 Eventually, he gets discharged from hospital not long afterwards, stands at a bus stop and then the bus arrives and the um, conductor hanging off the back turns to him and it's Miles Mallison. Room for one more inside, Yay! sir. And then you're going to go, <gasps> and, and, and his, the racing driver's face just kind of turns to ash and then the, the bus drives off and then in a brilliant bit of um, presumably model work, Miniatures works lovely. Um, the bus takes off down the road, careers down a railway siding, presumably killing everyone on board. So, Whatever this vision was, it saved his life. There's a there's a thing with it where it's playing with time and it says there's a time slip. He's had a yeah. premonition and it's a really simple thing where someone tells you that story. Yeah. And it's got that... Well, how it has got a story structure because it does have an ending. But yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of... 
it really reminded me of the way people tell ghost stories. Yeah. And the first one is is like a letter to the Fortean Times. Mm-hmm. I looked out the window and suddenly there had been a time step. And yeah. there, that's a phenomenon that happens in, in ghost stories all the time, that suddenly you're, you're shifted. It was daylight and suddenly it was dark. Yeah. And then it gives him a premonition and it saves his life. Yeah. So he tells that story and straight away the story he's telling to, to our architect and all the people, you know, well, he wouldn't be here. No, exactly. Unless he believed that mad thing had happened. And again, we're talking about this is just after the war. Were you affected by scary stuff that could drive you mad? This has, yeah. This moment of madness has saved his life. It's about the lasting effects of trauma, is what you're trying I'm to say. I'm trying to say, <laughs> yes. But it's true, though. You're right. These people, even the real people, even the actors, some of them must have been to war. Yeah. And it's just that the layers under all of that. It, it, it's just it's mind-boggling to think that yeah, they're not only playing people who've been through a war because they're playing yeah. contemporary characters. But the P, everyone involved has yeah. that collective trauma. Have you seen things that you don't talk about? Have you seen things you can't explain? Yeah. Have you seen things that have scared you? Yeah. And have you chosen not to talk about them? Which is the other big mark of this generation is that the next generation who come along uh, give you all those war films where it looks like an absolute hoot. Yeah. Because their parents didn't say, you know, this was awful. No, this no, was no. Awful. They, they, they have some distance. And commando and battle picture library and like the, a where eagles dare. This is the generation who, in one way or another, didn't talk about it. And it's a story about not talking about stuff. And that's really interesting. Did you ever read um, Michael Benteen's books about what he considered to be his special gifts? Do you ever uh, read yeah, those? Yes, yes, he went, went psychic woo, didn't he? Yeah, he went totally woo. And um, I remember my mum had all of his books and he wrote fiction as well. It was quite good, actually. Um, but the memoir stuff was particularly sort of like odd. And, I, and, and I, she just passed them on after she read them. And I read a couple. And he was convinced when he was an RAF pilot or an, uh, an officer in the RAF anyway during the war, he could see skulls over the faces wow. of his comrades who who weren't going to come back from a, from a bombing mission he was convinced that he knew, he could always predict he was going to die and it's wow. and it, is it that like retrospective trying to impose control on something that was so Random. terrifying and chaotic yeah. and deadly and traumatic it's um, yeah it, the, the stories we tell ourselves they always say that in therapy don't they what, what are the stories you've always yeah. told yourself and this film is obviously it's just lots of people telling stories but it's so interesting and so revealing the stories they're choosing to tell. If we're talking about this as well as a comfort, one of the things I think makes it work and makes it work for us is that people are somehow confronting fear and talking about fear, yeah. talking about terror, but in a really safe way. They don't say, I saw my friend burned alive in a tank. No. <laughs> they say, I saw a, a character actor in a hearse outside. Um, and I, I wasn't in a spitfire. I was definitely in a racing car. Yeah. It's all been taken just a couple of feet to the left of what you're actually talking about. Yeah. I think if we're, if we're playing this this idea that it's a metaphor for something, um, fear is, it's talking about fear, fear of death, fear of, of, of having escaped death or having... This guy talks about randomly escaping death. Now, anyone who is in that room in 1945 has just randomly escaped death. Exactly. Why? Can relate. (laughs) It's just me. It's a hard relate going on here. But what it's offering to the audience and to the actors and to us now is escapism. Because it's completely cloaked in fantasy. And that means it's a very safe way to talk about really scary stuff. Totally. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the Racing Driver story is directed by Basil Dearden, who's directing the framing device. Mm-hmm. So that sort of feels like it doesn't jump at all in tone. No, it's, it's a fairly seamless. A fairly easy shift, isn't it? You don't feel like you're suddenly being taken off to another another universe or another yeah, world-built thing. Yeah. It takes you in quite easy. And the next one is slightly more of a tonal shift. It's directed by Alberto Cavalcanti. The Cavalcanti. Cavalcanti. The flamboyant Italian director. And ice cream man. I don't know. He's a, <laughs> wow, that's he's so a, xenophobic. He comes in, he's got a big black pepper for the film. And he does. He peppers the film up in a massive he does, he does, way. He does kind of zhuzh it up somewhat, yeah. doesn't Cavalcanti's he? It's amazing. He did, he's just come off Went the Day Well, the amazing film Thor heard. The most incredible Has a machine movie. gun yeah. and uh, does I mean, about the British uh, village being invaded by Nazis. Amazing film. Yeah, again, uh, if you haven't seen that, for goodness oh, sake, don't water, waste another second. <laughs> water war movie. Uh, a brilliant, but again, a fantasy war movie yeah. about darkness and what people went through in the war. So he's come off that. And his next one is a very sweet, very simple Christmas ghost story with Sally Ann Howes, who's lovely and about 11. She is. She's a tiny child. She's fresh faced and lovely and just kind of a real kind of, in terms of that room, it's not really explained why she's there. She's kind of, I get the sense she's up at the big house at some point, her mum comes to take her home yes. again um but she's um she just clearly likes hanging out with middle-aged people like it's not really looked into why and let's just leave it there golf story i love golf stories <laughs> do tell another um and but she's this lovely sort of like light to the shade yeah. presence of everyone else in the room and kind of i feel like is the audience for like the first part yeah. of the film she's sort of just sort of looking around curiously listening to everyone and sort of being enthralled by them and then she tells her story which again doesn't seem to, I mean, whatever lasting trauma there was, and it is frightening. She seems to be able to talk about it sort of quite matter of factly, and she's still fairly jolly. And you know, there is, there, we did get through a war, and it's all fine. Yeah, so she tells the story of going away to a spooky old house. There's a creepy boy there. there it's, it's mostly a children's party. Yeah. There's a creepy older boy there. They're like the two oldest kids there, yeah. who's like trying to get her in a corner and kiss her. Hashtag me too. Very hashtag. Um, and then she ends up kind of to get away from him, finding a different part of the attic that she didn't know was there. He's in the meantime told her about this um, boy who was murdered in the house. And she ends up finding this crying little boy in a room, comforts him, puts him to bed, calls him darling, kisses him on the forehead and says, don't worry and, and you'll be fine now. And then comes downstairs and then the creepy boy is like, so so she's like, oh, there was I didn't you didn't tell me there was another kid upstairs staying here. And they were like, there isn't. And their, all their faces go, oh, he was murdered by his sister in 1880, blah. <laughs> and so she's kind of suddenly realised she's basically been cuddling a ghost. Yeah. A dead boy. <laughs> it's just got a lovely, simple, it's sunny, this one. But with yeah. that creepiness of going, there's a vulnerable child. There's at least one very classic ghost scene of her wandering around a, a sealed bit of the attic and hearing crying. Who's that? 
and I thought it was going to go and be much scarier than it Absolutely. was. Absolutely. It keeps very, very light because it's the one that's got children in it. It's yeah, not... and she reacts maternally and it's like it shows in, in a in a, go, in a sort of proper horror film or a ghost story, you'd be saying, oh, um, nothing bad can happen to her because look, look how open-hearted and yeah. good she is. She's gone and comforted a crying child. She doesn't know them. That means she's safe. The monster won't get her because she's a good character. But actually, yeah. it's the, there's no getting to be got. It's just that the knowledge that she's brushed up against something frightening and uncanny. He told me his name was... was, um... Francis Kent. Francis Kent? Come off it, Sally. So you knew all the time? Knew what? About Constance Kent, murdering her brother, Francis, of course. It's another time slip. It's another thing where one of the things that, that seems to sort of link all these ghost stories, well, I suppose what a ghost is, it's, it's something out of time. Yeah. It shouldn't be here. This child was murdered 80 years ago mm. uh, by uh, by his teenage sister in rage. So there's a dark story that the house has got. And there's and, a detail about, like, uh, she throttled him and then nearly cut his head off. Yeah, it's, it's proper. Like, the kind of story that kids tell each other. Yeah. Um, so there's a little time slip. She, tr- she slips through time and she is kind to a little scared kid. Yeah. I thought you were going to see the murder, but you don't. Me too. It's, it's, again, it, it, this is escapism. It's kept the uncanny is a hundred percent played out. It's a out. brush with it, but that's enough, isn't it? And it's enough for her to turn to the camera and say, "I'm not frightened." Yeah. I didn't know where the kid's name comes from, and this is oh. absolutely terrifying. Oh no! I'll never be able to watch it again now. <laughs> it's a bit like naming a Moore's murder victim. Oh no! In 1860. A 13-year-old girl in a country house killed a four-year-old boy. Shit. It's a massively famous murder case. Oh. And, it, and it would have been remembered because it's the case that's in The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. Oh, God. The book of the drama. I didn't know this at all. I found this out this afternoon. Wow. So when they refer to it, and it is literally 80 years before exactly that story, they are playing on a hope that the audience might remember. And be doubly chilled by it, yeah. That she's just been in a room with Ooh. a famous... And this, of course, is the, the the murder case, the suspicions of Mr. Witcher murder case, the first country house murder. Oh, wow. Uh, because as she was defended. It was impossible for her to have killed him because she was so well brought yeah, up. Yeah, she's middle class. School. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it invented the idea that gave us Agatha Christie. Uh, wow. The Moonstone is based on it with <gasps> Collins. All detective fiction, the idea that uh, midsummer murders, the idea that in a respectable middle class place, yeah. horrible murders can happen, come from this. And they're referencing it completely openly with the same names. It's oh Constance Kent goodness. and Francis Kent. Yes. Constance Kent is a teenage murderess. Oh. It's proper heavenly creature stuff. She was with a well known name. I imagine possibly in the 40s would still be remembered. I'm just and wrapping my blanket slightly more tightly around is. me. I'm actually wearing a comfort blanket. That's, <laughs> that's how much I love talking about this film. I, I like the turn of the screwiness of it that she's looking after. She's well, like completely. a governor. She pretends to be a governor. She's looking after a kid. But, but talking about, you know, all the, I mean, I know that the, you love um, the innocence the innocence and and, the and the other one yeah <laughs> the other one that you love you know the other ones one, the other with scary ghosts yeah. in the but the way it's shot so Cavalcanti's um, and also the, I don't know who the director of photography is but it's you know this, I don't you? I have to tell you who the director Go The on. lighting director on this film is Douglas Slocum. Of course it Douglas is. Douglas Slocum when he was really old, did all the Indiana Jones films. So every time someone casts a shadow on a wall, yeah, yeah. that's... Uh, but he's astonishing. Uh, he was, And it's uh, lit incredibly. Indie. It's almost like... So German, it looks really modern. It, no, looks, no, like, no, it looks like Spielberg. It looks like... It also looks like German Expressionism yes. or where all these, you know, sort of great shadowy lighting techniques sort of originated. It looks uncanny. The kind of weird down looking up angles up staircases and it uh, it's it it's built just sets with ceilings yeah. like Citizen Kane so basically you can do the scary angles which obviously is a big deal uh, yeah. Ealing's a studio it's a studio filmed thing there's yeah. some location work but every time you point a camera at the ceiling you've got to build a ceiling 
Yeah, it's a an, huge e- an ealing ceiling. An ealing ceiling. Um, well, I want shot um, as an extra. I want shot a credit card advert at Ealing Studios, Whoa. and only said yes because it was only just standing around being in a crowd for like three days because I just want. I'd never been inside Ealing Studios. Amazing. It was so exciting to be there. I got so overexcited cool. today about going to the Red Lion. Oh. Red Lion and Ealing is where they all used to write. Really? I just looked it up. I didn't know it. Apparently, the Red Lion pub in Ealing, uh, Alec Guinness and everyone used to just go and drink there. Oh, they, my God, cool. It was a really uh, socialist. Uh, Michael Balcon, who was the producer there, was a massive fan of the NHS and things. Yeah. Was huge. And the idea was this was socialist. It wasn't auteur cinema. Yeah. They'd all worked together. And this is his perfect example of him saying, we'll make a film together. <gasps> a We're cooperative. All... And he wasn't a big drinker, but everyone... he'd have the meetings in the in the, the office and he'd send them over to the pub and they'd work out how Fabulous. to make the film together. And apparently this is all made up in the red line and oh, Ealing. Oh, we so, have yeah. to go there. <laughs> we'll have a little pilgrimage now. <laughs> Right, and the next story we get told is, I think it might be your favourite one, possibly, and this is Robert Hamer directed this one, and this is The Haunted Mirror with Googie Withers. It is my favourite, largely because of Googie Withers, though. I think she's the most extraordinary actor, and she's such a presence in this straight... When you when you meet the country house characters yeah. in the framing device story at the beginning, throughout the whole film, every time she appears in the framing device, she picks up a cigarette, and in, in less time than it takes <laughs> her to get it to halfway to her mouth, a man is there with a flame ready to light it for her. I was like... That I th- not that I want to take up smoking again, but like I, I just want to be her. Every time she even thinks about a cigarette, seven men are going, Miss Withers, <laughs> and holding forth their flames. She's it's an so amazing cool. presence. She's obviously she's completely beautiful, really striking, but she's yeah. very, very confident, very dominant. She commands quietly something from you that you just can't quite help but give her. Mr Craig, I can only say the more incredulous the doctor becomes, the more I believe you. Thank you. And this is 100% her story. Ralph Michael, who plays her husband in this story, you might think he's the big guy because he's the guy who's, who's getting all the visions and he things. He gets to do big faces and, but you know. it's her story. She drives it. She yeah. does all the action. She's she's heroic in it. And, and you can't take your eyes off her. She's amazing. She's wonderful. Yeah, they're a nice couple. They're looking for a lovely house, perhaps in Chelsea. She buys him a present from this antique shop. It's a quite ugly, if I can say that, mirror. Um, clearly... It doesn't suit the rest of the decor, which is very 30s. <laughs> His flat is so modern, isn't it? It's yeah. like it's really not. It doesn't, and he doesn't um, make any comment on that at all. It would have looked really striking to anyone watching it in the 40s. You'd have said, that's a new flat. You're yeah. she's telling a story from a few years ago, but it looks absolutely state-of-the-art, modernist. No, no, it's contemporary. There's yeah. not a kind of wiggly edge or filigreed anything. It's all very sort <laughs> of straight lines cool you know and masculine it's yeah. a bachelor pad she buys him this quite filigreed antique mirror they fix it to the wall and and he left alone with the mirror starts to see another room a victorian kind of four-poster bed crackling fire lots of furniture and dark wood and sculptures and in, in just like a creepy looking yeah. shit so basically and um i remember when um when i studied this at university once quite hung over in a in a seminar my <laughs> lecturer was like um julia what's uh what's what's of your top line uh, what are you what are you talking about in this part of the film and i just said antiquity is sinister thinking that was about the most obvious thing i could say <laughs> and my lecturer was like that's amazing. Yes, I'm going to use that. Can I use that in a paper? Okay, great, great. And I was like, wow, wow. that's literally the only clever thing I've ever said at college and now. Do you, do you want to say it again now? <laughs> okay. So I noticed... Uh, what was that? What did you notice? In this particular part of the film, right. uh, antiquity has a sinister quality. My mind is blown. Old things are spooky. Old they things are, are spooky. But, I think, but that room in the, in the is very, very spooky. There's something not right about it. It's brilliantly 
unsettling and it's a really good effect they don't do anything clever with it literally it's one shot the other shot uh he can only see himself in it and the version of him that's in the mirror looks like it might do evil and it's he's got a nasty glint in his eye yeah it's a jekyll and hydey kind of thing but with a a time slip put in it and it there's a there's a a note some critics have noticed that he's a very feminine man yeah very feminine taste very very not not dissimilar to michael redgrave in terms of like aesthetically it looks like she's married a gay man uh is what's happened he's got a beautiful (laughs) beautiful bachelor party it's like she's marrying niles crane he's yes exactly he's terrible pretty and sort of beautifully dressed and, and within the mirror yeah. is a version of him that is basically Dr Jekyll or some uh, sort of Oliver Reedy kind yeah. of uh, aggressive man it's and naked it masculinity it's terrifying whatever he's pushed down his his thuggishness and his testosterone yeah. uh, is comes through that mirror and it builds towards and don't forget they're fear. two weeks off getting married yeah. so his balls are enormous oh, and blue yes. it's also that isn't it it's sexual <laughs> oppression it's yeah. like if you were about to marry Googie Withers but had yet to marry her yeah. you'd be like when am I going to get me a piece of Googie Withers I hadn't even thought or about Googie's that. Yeah. Withers in fact <laughs> <laughs> because it builds towards he can see that world and she can't eventually at some point she will look into that mirror and see herself reflected in yeah. there and he will do the bad thing and attempt to hurt her yeah, yeah, at yeah. that point where she can see it that's the point at which she goes, oh, this is real. The threat from this man is real. Yeah. And then she does an amazing thing. Yeah. And she just grabs something, smashes the mirror. Very, yeah. very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, And that feels like an explosion. She saves him. Yeah, she saves which him Which, again, himself. is terribly modern. It's very cool. When, again, you... Ju- and maybe I'm reading too much into this, when you've just come out of a war, literally, moments ago, where men went off to war yeah. and the women took over a lot of the jobs. She's the powerful one in that yeah. story and he's sort of just the cipher for it really he gets p- passively possessed by something and she comes in swings a huge metal object and smashes it and then saves him from himself she's a final girl it really is it's a yeah. Ripley uh, Jamie Lee Curtis thing totally. where, where the horrors come in and and she's the one being threatened she's vulnerable she's the one who could get strangled oh, yeah, she's yeah, physically yeah. weaker and he could destroy her mm-hmm. and she turns around she stabs Michael Myers in the, in the head it's yeah, a really yeah, yeah. lovely moment Peter Peter darling are you alright I seem to have cut myself. Sit down, let me have a look at it. In any other film, it would be him she'd have to somehow kill or stop or, you yeah. know, the person she loves, she'd have to kind of gather all her strength up and do something terrible to him to save herself. But she works out it's it's all the mirror, it's yeah. not him. And she says, like, it's the mirror, it's the mirror. And he doesn't listen because he's too possessed with rage and sexual repression and but she kills the bad toxic she, masculinity. She kills the toxic masculinity within him <laughs> and she ends up with a lovely man and he makes her a quiche. I know, exactly. And, and, and plays her some classical music. <laughs> yes, it's all, he suddenly understands feelings and it's all fine and they can uh, go on a lovely, they can go and see a rom-com I think together. the clue was there all along that he had a really beautifully designed apartment and there was no indication that she did that so he must have done. So there you go, interior design. That's perfect. It was all there. It's all What it is, it's the one of the most traumatic episodes changing rooms I've ever seen. Uh, obviously, the next story that comes up, which is the Charles Crichton one, who obviously went on to do The Lavender Hill Mob and ended up doing uh, Fish Called Wanda was his last film. He's incredibly God, that's crazy, isn't it? Uh, good uh, comedy director. And he gets the comedy one, which is The Two Golfers, based on an H.G. Wells story. We talked about this at length anyway. It's yeah. the one people think is disposable. But we do, I, this time around, I really liked it. Yeah, I think it's really enjoyable. And once you remember the role it plays yeah. in the rest of the film... 
it's um it, it is a welcome relief from the sinisterness yeah. of antiquity it's sort of suddenly it's sunny a golf course it just changes the temperature enough for you to catch your breath I think. but it's still got i think thematically it's still got this thing about people not responding to trauma in the correct way yeah. his mate walks into a pond a really haunting terrifying scene of a man just being a hat on on, on reflective water but that's water. funny though it's brilliantly done and his hat does just stay on the surface yeah. as the, the rest of him clubs and all disappears <laughs> beneath the waves you know? and it's full of comic scenes and it's then there's lots of mischief and things but i think if you try and imagine the film going straight from haunted mirror to eventual kiss dummy yeah I think oh, no, that would have been too much. becomes less because the yeah. contrast of light and darkness. And this is a film where the lighting is brilliant and the understanding of the contrast between light and shade, yeah. both in the script and the direction and the performances and the lighting, yeah. is masterful. And I think this moment of light is really good. It's great. It's Blythe Spirit. It's yeah. the ghost and Mrs. Muir. It's, it's the kind of the funny wackadoodle ghost story yeah. that actually underneath it has something quite unpleasant. Wish you were dead, old man. You're just as good if you were. George, I've got it. What? We'll play for her. Tomorrow morning, 18 holes. Match play. The loser to vanish from the scene. Forever. Pretty well, then. Of course. Why didn't we think of it sooner? You can have funny ghost stories. And what they're showing is that this is a demo reel of all the sorts of ghost stories that the censors wouldn't allow them to make. Well, one of them would have been anything about death. It's got suicide in it. Yeah. Um, it's also quite saucy. I mean, it's not wildly good on consent. But, no. <laughs> but it is, it, it's got sort of, it's lots of wedding night jokes and things. It's a bit ribald. It's a bit naughty. Yeah. And actually, I think that feeling is really good because where we're going to go next explains why we had to go there for a bit. Yeah. We're going somewhere so dark in a minute that let's, let's keep it light for a second because you're going to need everything you've got to kind of get through the next bit. Because a chap becomes a ghost, it surely doesn't mean that he ceases to be a gentleman. And now we're going into the closing straight. No, no, the film's finished now. That's the end of the film. Well, that was lovely to have talk about, Les. You just, I, thought it was like I, I put it in the fridge. Yeah, yes, no, no, I ha- I, obviously I have lots of times. God, it's about to go somewhere absolutely horrible. And this is a great moment because they've everyone's told their story and we now come down to... Uh, Professor Van Straten. It's his turn to tell a story. Yeah. And he tells a story. You go at the end of this, you go, no, no, you don't get to say that anyone they made this up because this happened to you. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah, a witness yeah. to this and this is nuts. Although, obviously, he's a, a mental health professional. Yes. And his take on the story that he's telling, obviously, although he's like, I guess it was kind of weird, is that he was dealing with an insane person. Yeah. This is a story he was brought in to assess someone who was clearly clearly clinically insane. And by this point, you as a witness, as a viewer of the film, watch it and you look out for evidence for where it's supernatural. Yeah. And that's the bit that's magic, because he's presenting it as his evidence. And you keep wanting to go, hang on, there's gaps in this. Some impossible stuff happened. And that is where the creepiness in this last story gets in. It is about fear of madness. It is about fear of schizophrenia and broken identities and obsession and things. But it's also... Definitely, probably about a ventriloquist dummy that comes to life. Apart from my bit of nonsense, the curious thing is that all of you, even Sally, seems to have had one of these extraordinary experiences. Well, perhaps they aren't so extraordinary. Perhaps they happen to most people. Oh, you mean there's a ghost as well as a skeleton in everyone's cupboard? (laughs) That's a pretty thought. And what's the ghost in your cupboard, Doctor? Well, there was one occasion in my professional career that made me wonder... Made me wonder quite a lot. So Van Stratton, it's his story, but once you're in flashback, once you're in yeah. his story, it's, you know, it's Michael Redgrave's story. So yes. it, he's he is an unlikely ventriloquist <laughs> who has a very difficult relationship with the bottle, his own mind, and his ventriloquist dummy. Sorry, but I can't bear anyone touching him. Oh, that's all right. Forget it. 
Say, I sure like to know how you pull that gag. What gag? Well, just now before you came in. You know, for a moment, I could have sworn it was the dummy speaking. And it's that thing about ventriloquism. It's always those kind of um, comedy acts that are designed to punch down or or humiliate audience members or make you feel uncomfortable. The dummy can say things that the person can't say. It's all of that. The reason why you have Rod Hull and Emu is because Emu can can go up someone's skirt or, you know, knock someone's wig off, whatever, and and, uh, the way that Rod Hull never could. Didn't I see you working your head off in the Folie Berger? I'm sure I saw her in the Folie Berger. Oh, the lady's face is familiar, is it? What would I be doing in the Folie Berger, looking at faces? The things you've suppressed, the bad uh, opinions, the, 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 the smart mouth, the, yeah. the socially unacceptable behaviour can come out through... You put something on your hand, Yeah, it's a bladder on a stick, and it can hit people. On your way, sister, on your way. Oh, aren't you a little devil? Come along now. Take your hands off me, will you? I'll punch your messy little face in. Say, Maxwell, this cheap bit of skirt's getting after me. But you're seeing Michael Redgrave's story, yeah. or his character's story, from the POV of his character. Yeah. You only get the psychiatrist brought in when it's deemed that he's yeah. gone mad. So you're, it's just, you're just left to watch this guy who really believes that his ventriloquist dummy tells him what to do, is trying to ruin his life, is going to cheat on him with another ventriloquist. Like the yeah. full mad works. You're not watching it as insanity. You're watching it as this supernatural, yeah. freaky little guy is causing havoc. There's no moment that I think this is, this is what Van Stratton says. From the, from the very first beat no, of it. No, it's and, not his story at and all. it's amazing storytelling in that I know because of the rules of Dead of Night, yes. that's a creepy doll. Yeah. And what's happened here, and that w- will influence uh, Magic and Chucky and everything, that's a creepy doll. It's an yeah. inanimate object that has got ideas above its station. Yeah. Um, it's going to cause trouble. Exactly. So there's there's a, a an American character. He's sitting on the front row of the He's called Sylvester. Um, and I can only remember his name really clearly because of the way that the, the dummy says Sylvester. <laughs> and he gets sort of pulled into the act one night as a, as, a, as a punter. And then Michael Redgrave's character starts to suspect that Sylvester is going to take uh, the dummy away, yeah. that Hugo is going to defect to another act. Um, which obviously sounds mad and sounds kind of funny. It sounds like it could be done in the same tone as the golfing story. Yeah. But every... Every millimetre of this is just a, a film of this is so unsettling. And it's mostly Michael Redgrave's face that just looks there's something terrible has happened. The man, the man could be shell shocked. He could be in trauma. Yeah. He could have come back from war and never quite been able to get, get rid of the things he saw. That's how he acts as someone there's who's a, seen too much and is now in a terrible, terrible way psychiatrically. <laughs> there's a gear change into this, again, which hadn't occurred to me. You talk about the arrangement of these things and why you can't remove bits. You're right. This is not an Edwardian ghost story. This Mm-mm. is very modern. This is set in showbiz. It's in a jazz club. There's yeah. sort of singers. It's mixed race. It's very, very modern and new. Yeah. And in a weird way, even though the golfers is got a bit of an old-fashioned Edwardian story, that feels like it's happening now. You've Pretty got much. two contemporary stories. It's not a, an Edwardian ghost story. It's not like the old Dark House story that we yeah. had before. It's not about a Victorian murder. These They're are not taking things. you to a Gothic mansion now. Yeah. These are set in modern places. Uh, it's not even about the antiquity of the mirror. This is happening now. And the two stories that go next to each other, the golfers and this one, are modern stories about a, a silly rivalry. Yeah. Between two silly men. Yeah. 
who might even be like a bromance. There's these sort of strange sort of homoerotic tones to sort of how close these men are. Yeah. But really, they're the same story twice. They are and kind of. The one you've just seen was really funny and flip. Yeah. And this one, every moment of it is pitch black, dark and insane. Yeah. And I think it's because it's the same sort of story again. I'm not such a fool as you think, Sylvester Key. I remember what happened in Paris. I know what you're after. You won't get away with it. You're crazy. But it's that it's that lovely scene at the bar that kind of really underlines. I mean, the whole story does. So Michael Redgrave's there, so slumped against the bar with the dummy. And then a guy comes in with these two broads, these two girls. Yeah. And then the dummy, uh, she, she really wants to pick the dummy up and just give him a hug. But it really underlines that the jollity of the bar, of these people who've seen a lovely act at a nightclub and now want to get a drink afterwards... They're, li- they're living in a different reality. Maxwell lives in a place of yeah. darkness and loneliness and nobody else lives there with him. He's just on his own with this terrifying cipher for his innermost turmoil yeah. in, a, in a kind of freaky three-foot dog. <laughs> the former story of the two men competing, they're living in the same reality. Yeah, he, yeah. Doesn't li- he doesn't share his with anybody else apart from the dummy and it's really obvious yes. and unsettling. The previous story is about friendship, about two people who... Yeah. The, the woman isn't important in the previous story. It's about two <laughs> I mean, men. She literally isn't given a character. <laughs> but also, weirdly, she might as well be a dummy. She's, yeah. she's, she's an oh, animal God, object. Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't noticed it's two people fighting over an animal object yeah. is what both these stories are. Yeah. Or I think it doesn't matter, it's a cipher. But mm. in the second one, what if the animal object was the devil? Was it the wor- yeah. your worst impulses? What if you, you'd used it as a, de- as a depository for all the darkest bits of yourself? Yeah. Which is what event act is. It's you put the darkest bits of yourself, the forbidden bits into a doll that says the unsayable. Yeah, yeah. And again, maybe we're talking about this whole film being about British stiff upper lip. Where do you put your nasty side? Right. If you've got your stiff upper lip and you're being an absolute gentleman all the time, where does it go? Well, that's it. If everyone's repressing the, the inconvenient bits, when will, the, when will the bulges start to come out in the carpet? Will you crack? Because they will. One of the things I only found out this afternoon doing a bit of research is that Michael Redgrave was... He professed bisexual. Wow. But married in married a way that makes you maybe woman. he yeah. wasn't. And he would have lived constantly trying to hide a yeah. side of his character. I mean, he played the truth of that in, 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 in a, such an intensely engrossing way. Like, you can't look away from him when he's on screen. He was apparently in the middle of really bad mental health period when he was making this. Well, it's pretty brave of him to then throw it into it's a performance. on screen. There's yeah. no fakery in this, but I did or wonder maybe it whether... was a way to channel it that was, like, socially acceptable. I'm acting, but yeah. maybe he wasn't acting. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a side of him he doesn't like, or mm-hmm. he's embarrassed about, because he talks about going... In, he used to go off and pay for depravity, he used to call it. Told yeah. his, when, when Corin Redgrave wrote his, his memoir, Michael Redgrave... He's he was trying to tell his dad, just talk about this. People will be fine right, with this much right. later. Yeah. And he still wouldn't talk about it. Wow. He was a massively, let's say a best, a closeted gay man. There was a side to him that he was hiding. Yeah. And society said it's unacceptable. And mm. part of it, watching this again now going, I can't help but see something symbolic in yeah. the story of a foul-mouthed little man who yeah. is the other side of this man. And the fact they're going to split and his worry that one of them will take over or people get yeah. to see it. There's a load going on in this that I'd never saw was in it, but it's in his eyes. He's telling you that story all the time. Completely. He's not happy. Oh, Carl. You don't mean that. You're joking. Like hell I am. I've my career to think of. You wouldn't run out on me now. I can't believe it. He plays that more convincingly than I think I've ever seen, even in modern yeah. sort of films or, or TV about mental health breakdown or or someone living in torment like that there's something weirdly modern and honest yeah. and untheatrical but his acting was 
in this film especially is so incredibly modern yeah. and kind of Lee Strasberg and small and perhaps more Possessed. in line with some yeah. of the American sort of Very approaches to cinema. But it was it, the most method thing I think I've ever seen and knowing what you said now... It just, the pain looks real. Yeah, I mean, having, I listened to a terrific podcast about the history of Method and, and Method before it was dressing as your character in a fat suit for the whole period and, and <laughs> yeah. living and, and being horrible to... Try acting, uh, love. Yes, being, being horrible <laughs> to the makeup lady. Before it was that, yeah. what it was was try and find some pain in your own life right. and draw into it. It was a simple piece of advice rather than doing sort of stagey acting. But it's no, an old-fashioned no, no, no. film where everyone's come from that school. Yeah. In the middle of it, you drop Michael Redgrave and he is doing a 1950s performance. Yeah. He is doing a Marlon Brando... Um, a kitchen Justin sink Hoffman. drama or uh, yeah. yeah any of those guys he, he's reaching and going when have I felt this scared yeah. and it's in his eyes and there's no fakery and what's scary is at this point in the film the camera has complete Cavalcanti frames him so you're looking at him all the time and mm. you are not allowed to look away and he is saying I am scared yeah and for a horror film to end on as it often does in slasher movies, the look of someone who is just scared. Yeah. That's therapeutic. That is a thing to watch. Can I see it now? I've repressed it. Can yeah. I see it? There's one shot and it is brilliantly done and it is horrible where the dummy comes to life, a small actor with a grotesque mask. It's a child in papier-mâché yeah. in the final sequence. Come, stands up and yeah. kind of moves around and it's just, it's brief and it's brilliant and it's horrible. And normally I would say never ever show what you're threatening to show. Like don't, mm. only ever do it in the reaction. Especially if you have a face like M Michael Redgrave at to your watch. disposable, you just do it in reaction mm. shots. But it is sparingly used and I think it really really works because it did it still makes me recoil it's so horrid it's one of the most horrifying moments that sequence with the the, the doll coming to life happens in the very very last closing bits where yeah. it's in the mind of the architect yeah. where he, he falls into all the stories it's a psychedelic wig out ending which is amazing I mean films ended with psychedelic wig out endings in the 60s but this is a film from the 40s that ends with all the p stops being pulled out. That's where you're headed. It's headed. whistles and bells, and it ends up with um, the the Cavalcanti's um, Christmas ghost story yeah. with the kids chopping off people's heads with your you know hands it's clasped either side of them. And suddenly overload. the architect's in the middle of the game, and it's just oh, and great. for one more inside, all the other films and all the other stories start, start to crash in towards the end, yeah. and it ends up with this tiny, tiny shot. I mean, it's probably seconds long yeah. of the doll standing up and attacking the architect. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a scene, I think, as scary as Sadako coming out of the television yeah. ring. It's all about unusual movement. Really well edited. Yeah. And then it finishes, and it ends the way that all these films should end. He sits up straight in bed and goes, oh, I've had a terrible dream. Yeah. Darling, whatever's the matter? Another nightmare. You poor sweet. Hello? Yeah, and you go, yeah. oh... Hope that's not a cheat. No, 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 no. And no. then the most incredible thing in the world happens. The film starts again. It starts again, which is just audacious and, and it brilliant. it starts again. And as his car drives up in a mirror of the first shot mm -hmm, you've seen, mm -hmm. the words the end appear over the beginning of the film. Yeah. And then the credits start to roll over the film in starting again. In front of again. his face as he's happily driving along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you yeah. go, oh, he was caught in a loop. Or yeah. is this the time it's going to happen again? Or he can't get out. Yeah. He's trapped. It wasn't a nightmare that he is. You don't wake up from the nightmare and then it stops. No. You wake up from the nightmare and it starts. And it starts again. <laughs> um, and I'd not and he's already this. said that he's had that dream so many times and you're just like, where are we in this now? And there's, there's jokes in there, I'm sure, about, you know, this is where we came and where films used to do this so they'd show them on a loop yeah 
yeah. for 1945 for a film to end with its beginning and say that this is a loop and a, yeah. a nightmare you can't escape from because that's the look on the character's face yeah. at the beginning yeah, 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 when yeah. you first see him and he wanders into shot he looks like I'm trapped in this house again I'm yeah. tra-. so he's going to have to watch the film again it's so claustrophobic because by the end even as he's driving along a sunny country road like he was at the beginning he's trapped you're trapped with him he's trapped in whatever this reality is or whatever this dream is you don't know what you're watching anymore it looks so brightly lit and reassuring and normal, but it's also utterly... I mean, you're kind of relieved to be back in the daylight, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know he's about to go back in, but you get to switch it off and say, maybe that's why I find it comforting. That's it. He's because trapped and you're I not. Get, I get to leave and I leave him there. But it's using a Possibly technique. Possibly about to murder a psychiatrist <laughs> <laughs> after breaking his glasses. But it, it, it's got a technique in it then that it's saying, you're talking about why is, why is this horror film comforting? Yeah. Is that you don't take it home with you. No, 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 because no. Because it's happening to him. What you've got is the control of a viewer. Yeah. You put the DVD back in the box yeah. or you walk out of the cinema when it says the, when it says the end, that's your excuse, you can go home. I am allowed to leave. because you watch there's him like, trapped. Here's, here are the actors you have been watching and it's like, Okay, that's great. You do feel there's a real palpable sense of relief and not because you haven't enjoyed feeling, but by the time you hit those dark depths of the Maxwell Freer story and the dummy and just everything and it all culminating, it is like coming up for air. Yeah. It's like opening the curtains and realising it's sunny outside after a storm or something. It's just, it's the most wonderful feeling. Who was it? Friend of Bill's. Wants me to go down for the weekend. Reconstruction job. An old farmhouse in Kent. A weekend in the country. I should go. Mm. That's just what you need, darling. It'll help you get rid of those horrible nightmares. It's strange because that, that technique is used in films. It's the, it's the hand of the murdered person coming out of the grave yeah. again. The idea that, oh, it's just starting again. Yeah, I mean, you get yeah, the feeling yeah. maybe this is the first time that had been done. Maybe. But there's a weird sort of satisfaction in you going, do you know what, guys? I'm leaving you here yeah. to battle Freddy Krueger forever. And you know what happens anyway, so yeah, I've seen <laughs> I don't it need to see it again. There's <laughs> a lovely thing. This is where we came in. And you can walk out and go home. And what yeah. you've done is you've packaged all your fears off into a yes. place that was safe in the dark. And it did get really dark, but it was safe because you got to hand it back. It's imposing control on something that at times was really chaotic and unpleasant. The, the feelings it's, it brought It's the up. roller coaster going the end yeah. and the person pulling up the, the thing that's holding you in yeah. and saying you can step out now of the, off, get out of the ghost train yeah and you did not not enjoy it but you're just so happy to be back on solid ground again <laughs> I don't think I've ever really thought about why something that goes to such a dark place can make me feel okay and it's because it's you can open the book you can close the book you can open the book you can close the book you can if you want to you can watch it in small chunks but it's so much better yeah. to just experience it and it's then, a film. It's and then feel the sun on your skin and go outside and go, I don't live there. It's great. It's maybe great. that's what, I mean, maybe you're feeling it a very small thing. I've never thought this before, before talking about it today is that that feeling of going, this was a necessary thing for the whole country to go yeah. through. They, it's really odd when people say, we don't want any horror films during the war. And you want to go, maybe that's exactly what you want. What did people say? I mean, I didn't, but people started doing the minute there was lockdown and pandemic and, and, and panic local and, mm. and global was there were people watching films about pandemics and you were playing a computer game where you built a city and then there was an outbreak of a killer yeah, I, disease that I, I killed everyone. Us, which was about surviving, <laughs> surviving a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. There is a thing about saying what art is for yeah. is for processing. It's catharsis. It's Shakespeare talks about Aristotle. Talks about, it's about catharsis. You're supposed yeah. to go through the experience of a scary thing in complete safety. Yeah. It's not meant to be the same as being scared. No, exactly. It's not. It's the, it's the sanitised version. Yes, you're right. Maybe this is what the UK, England needed after those years of trauma. It's a traumatic film that definitely ends 
and it ends in sunshine and it ends and it's completely sealed and there's no escape. No one from that film is going to escape and get into your dreams. <laughs> they better not. They it's, it's impossible. I mean, the be. dummy maybe. I, I mean, he's, he's even there. He's sealed in there. It's a thing that stops. You close the last page of the book and you put it down, then you can go to sleep. That's what we all like, isn't it? It's so healing. Yeah. What a brilliant thing. <laughs> Thank you for reading Dead of Night. Hooray! Just room for one more inside, sir. <laughs> no, no, no. You've chosen for your Halloween choice the 1945 film Dead of Night. <gasps> Spooktacles. <laughs> I've heard you say this is your favourite film. I, I, honestly, I think Backs Against the Wall, it probably would be my favourite film if, if I was absolutely forced to choose because it's so many different films in one film. Oh, good I guess <laughs> Desert Island-wise, yeah. then it means I'm getting to take something away that's more than just one story or the sum of its parts. So, yeah, I, yeah. That's just what you need, darling. It'll help you get rid of those horrible nightmares. Presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.